Blog Talk Radio. This is our common ground, alternative activists, empowerment, talk radio, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Who are you? You don't know. Don't tell me Negro, that's nothing. What were you before the white man named you a Negro? And where were you? And what did you have? What was yours? What language did you speak then? As you honor our forefathers and foremothers, I urge you to honor our living heroes. When you honor the names of Matt Turner, Harriet Tubman, and Malcolm X, I urge you to honor the names of Geronimo Gijaga, Sundiata Akoli, Matulu Shakur, and Mumia Abu-Jamal. America's chickens! Coming home to roost. Violence begets violence. Hatred begets hatred. And terrorism begets terrorism. Our common ground speaking truth to power and ourselves. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Thank you for being with us. Stay tuned. Black community is plagued by many deficits, economic, civic, political, educational, and we have long known that too many black churches in our community have disengaged from its historical role in addressing the issues that ravish our people at our common ground. We explore the notion that the black church is on fire and it has been invaded by a new theology of prosperity that has created a distance and barriers to the traditional roles that it has played in the political, civic, and social development in our community and in our struggle toward justice and freedom. This is our common ground. Our guest tonight, Dr. Matthew Johnson. He is the author of The Tragic Vision of African-American Religion and many more that inform us of the nature of our institutional and spiritual resources that have historically come from the black church. I'm Janice Graham, and I'll be listening for you. Black Church on Fire, the black church and the prosperity gospel movement with Dr. Matthew Johnson. Thank you for being with us. We, we have a lot of spirit in our churches. I'm not just sure whose spirit it is. And, and maybe that's why thinking is so low in our church. You see, I think the black church is very good at producing people who can proclaim who can preach, who can really entertain. And we have done that well 
In fact, we have, I think it would be fair to say, we have produced the greatest preachers in the world. That is, we have produced people who can really say the word, their word. But what we have not done is we have not really kept our people to know what the gospel is, to think on it, to reflect on it, and to be able to understand what challenges this gospel places before us in the world in which we live. To try and distort Jesus, to try and justify your new jet plane or your new Rolls Royce, is to me an abomination. Joining L. Sharpton in condemning the gospel of prosperity is religious author Jim Wallace. The prosperity gospel is a biblical heresy. It reverses the biblical view and priorities. The pastor of Atlanta's Ebenezer Baptist Church, Reverend Raphael Warnock, agrees. The gospel of the bling bling in which the preachers and the rappers are saying virtually the same thing. Get rich or die trying. Reverend Warnock says prosperity preaching is dangerously out of line with the teachings of Jesus Christ. When preachers fail to speak to that larger social reality, not only are they being irresponsible, in a real sense we become bedfellows uh, with the powers and the principality, pr principalities that oppress the poor. But followers of Creflo Dollar we spoke to say once they embraced his teachings, they experienced God's prosperity. We had a house built. Uh, we were a couple that wanted to have the American dream. So when the pastor started teaching about business and that God God wants you prosperous and how to get wealth God's way, we were just we were blown away. We were thinking like, wow! So God wants us to be rich and have all these you know nice cars and a big house and vacation home. I mean, both of us came from a background where uh, his family struggled, my family struggled, so we didn't have, uh, we weren't used to having nice things, so to see people say that God bless them with these things if they would seek him first, it, it blew us away. I mean, we already wanted to, we still had this void and we felt that we were just we felt such a disconnect from Jesus the more and more that we pursued all of these things. And till one day, I think God just smacked both of us. And, and it was then, it was a, a certain day, we had been on the phone arguing for hours. And at that moment, both of us said to ourselves, we are not in God's will. We're just going to forget all of this stuff about prosperity and trying to find wealth and possessions, and we're just going to get back to seeking God and, and find out what God really wants from us. The, the phrase comes to mind, you know, I'm blessed and highly favored, where we used to speak to each other and say, how you doing? Now people announce the fact that they're blessed and highly favored by God. Uh, at one level, it looks like a statement of faith. At another level, it has an element of religious pathology to it. In, in that... Um, it singles people out to think that they are in some sense, it has, I think, the psychological resonance of saying that I'm better, I'm different, I'm other uh, than you are. And I think that has a strange appeal in the black community where 
we are constantly being told that we are less than and that we do not measure up. Um, the cultural categories that define black being, the cultural taxonomies that defines us as evil, bad, negative, criminal, uh, uh, not intellectually uh, up, up to par, and so forth. So that this has a, these, the tenets of the prosperity gospel has another level of psychological appeal in the black community that makes it extremely attractive. And consequently, it has a certain kind of staying power. The problem is, is that it is very unhealthy. It encourages a certain kind of divisiveness in the community so that those of us who define ourselves as Christian in this narrower sense see ourselves as somehow insulated from the other dynamics that are impacting the larger black community. In other words, that's happening to you because your faith isn't right. It's happening to you because you're not faithful in terms of your religious observance, or it's happening to you because you don't believe the right things, which then suggests that all you have to do is believe the right things, uh, go to the right church, listen to the right bishop, and suddenly your life will fall in order. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. Tonight, we are returning to the question of, is the black church on fire? And what does it mean for the black church and the black community as the growing and mounting prosperity movement moves toward it? It was Dr. James Cohn, who is many times noted as the originator of black theology, who said a community that does not analyze its existence theologically is a community that does not care what it says or does. It is a community with no identity. Traditionally, black churches have emphasized spiritual renewal, social justice, educational uplift, community improvement, and civic engagement in addition to individual achievement. The fact that the black church was the focus for the community and personal advancements was what made it a powerful force for hope and survival, supporting the movement the many movements of black people toward freedom, liberty, and justice. Tonight at Our Common Ground, our guest once again is Dr. Matthew V. Johnson, Sr. He joins us to discuss the decline of black church engagement in the matters of black community, socioeconomic, cultural, and governmental affairs, and the surging popularity of the black posterity gospel. He's a graduate of Morehouse College and earned his master's and Ph.D. degrees in philosophical, philosophical theology 
from the University of Chicago. He's done postgraduate studies in psychoanalysis and is currently a member in training at the Institute of Contemporary, Contemporary Psychotherapy and Psychoanalysis. He's been in the ministry for 30 years, and he's the pastor of the Church of the Good Shepherd Baptist. And um, he lives, writes, teaches, and practices his ministry in the greater Atlanta, Georgia uh, area. Among his publications, The Tragic Vision of African American Religion, The Cicada's Song, The Passion of the Lord, African American Reflections, and Onesimus, Our Brother, Reading Religion, Race, and Culture in Philemon. And we are so pleased to have, once again, Dr. Matthew Johnson to join us in our at our common ground. And thank you all for being with us here tonight. You want to write it down. Our number is 347-838-9852. And we will be taking your calls in the course of this broadcast. Dr. Matthew Johnson, how are you tonight? I'm fine, thank you. First of well, all, it's I, good I like, to hear that you are. I'd like, I'd like to bring you greetings from um, the Good Shepherd Church Baptist. It meets at uh, 5355 Hunter Road, right off of South Fulton uh, uh, Highway in South Atlanta. So all of you who are looking for a church that puts the sense back into religion, stop by and see us tomorrow at 11 a.m. Well, it's such a large um, undertaking to put our sense back into our religion that we have uh, in undertaken uh, part two to discuss this black church and prosperity movement and the core question of what has happened to the engagement and the inspiration and the sanctuary that the black church has traditionally brought to black people as we struggle for freedom and justice in this country. So thank you so very much for joining us once again, and I'm going to try not necessarily to to end up where we ended to start out where we ended on June 23rd but to ask the core question one what is the black church and two what is this prosperity gospel all about well I'm glad you started off with the question what is the black church because the the assumption um the easy assumption that's often made when it comes to the black church is that it is a homogenous institution. That at some point in our history, the black church had some singular definition and identification and theological framework with which it operated. Uh, that That is misleading. Uh, two, I think the broader category of African-American spirituality is probably a more appropriate um, category for framing our discussion because not all of our spirituality um, is contained within the church as it is defined creedally or within the creedal definitions of different denominations. So in a sense, the black church is a heterogeneous uh, reality, different creeds, different denominations, different theological frameworks, different liturgical styles to some degree, but I would want to add that beneath that, 
all of that heterogeneity, heterogeneity, there is a surging spirituality that we all share um, as African Americans, that we all that we all can access, or most of us can access to a greater or lesser degree, that does bring some possibility of coherence in our orientation to our lives, our politics, our culture, and so forth. Uh, it extends outside of the churches and the mosques, even into uh, things like R&B and blues and even uh, hip-hop in, in some of its, I think, more healthier forms of expression. So the black church is grounded and is the epicenter of black spirituality in its various manifestations, but it does not completely contain or exhaust the spiritual reality that surges beneath black culture and helps us preserve our dignity and our creativity. When we talk about the black church, and we know that there are many church organizations, religious organizations, which make up the black church across the country, some of them are more prominent than than others. One here in Boston is the 12th Baptist Church. Another is the New Hope Baptist Church, uh, which was uh, built during the uh, revolutionary American Revolution. Um, and in Birmingham, there's the 16th Baptist Street Baptist Church, and then there's Ebenezer um, there in Atlanta. But when we talk about the black church, what are we talking about? Are we talking about the church where black people attend service and are members? What is what in your mind? Let's frame what is the traditional black churches, the sanctuaries that I talked about in my introduction, the places where black people could depend upon for their socioeconomic cultural needs. Uh, First, let me, let me let me draw a distinction that may be helpful as we think our way through this and to our main subject, the prosperity movement. Um, there's two ways of looking at how we define the black church. There is a descriptive and then there's a normative dimension. When we talk about the normative dimension, we talk about the essence or the ideal black church that in some sense represents the ideal toward which all black churches, given the nature of our spirituality, should be moving, the norm that should be established. And then there is a descriptive black church, which is heterogeneous um, at best, uh, fragmented at, at, at worst. Traditionally, when we talk about the black church, we're talking about um, a normative uh, or ideal construct that different churches and different in different regions have to a greater or lesser extent approached. And what that ideal is, is a church that is committed first um, to furthering the goals and aims of equality and of justice and of freedom as they manifest, as these needs and drives manifest themselves in the surging spirituality that undergirds the entire community. And so when we talk when we hear black church, what we use what's usually being referred to is that tradition within the black church that captures the spiritual dynamism 
of an oppressed people, i.e. African Americans, and focuses 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 it on the achievement of freedom and equality and health in the African American community. Mhm. Now, m- most people as we talk about this structure, most people think of the black church, obviously the African-American Episcopal uh, denomination. They think of the Baptists, both the National Baptists and the other Baptists. What is the other Baptists? The <laughs> Na- National Baptist Convention USA, Inc., which is the largest, the National Baptist of America, the National Baptist of America, Inc., and the Progressive National Baptist Convention. Yeah. And then there is the other CME church. And exactly, uh, AME Zion. I mean, we get into all of these denominations. But then the various uh, Pentecostal um, manifestations of the black church, which is which, key to our discussion. Yeah, which most people don't really know specifically about these denominations, but if you say AME, most people will think, well, that's the only ME, but it is not. But then there is, um, you know, uh, other denominations that are inside of our our community. For instance, uh, one of my good friends, Bishop George Stallings, He's now calling himself uh, Pope George Stallings. I don't know what Reverend Stallings is calling himself now, but I love the brother. I don't care what he calls himself. (laughs) But at one time he was a priest in the Catholic Church and became a renegade on the issues of white supremacy and racism, and he got booted out and he started the African-American uh, Catholic congregation for which he had a couple of churches, one in New Orleans, one in Baltimore, one in D.C., one in New York. Um, even at one point, Reverend Johnson invited me to be a minister, and I didn't know Jack from Joe, uh, and I certainly didn't know Jack from Joe in the Catholic Church. <laughs> so, um, and, and, and now he is doing something else. So, uh, and then you have um, large, very large black uh, black congregations of the Episcopal denomination. Are, are those the are we also talking about those churches? And then there's this other church, the um, uh, Benjamin. Um, I can't think of the name of that kind of church, that denomination. It's the um, Reverend Wright's church. What what denomination is that? Oh, uh, UCC, United right. Church of Christ. United Church of Christ, exactly. Well, well there's, there's a difference. Uh, Reverend Wright's church, at, at a descriptive level, it, it, that whole thing is, is not the black church per se. They, they're a black caucus in a white church. Uh, the denomination is a white denomination. That's and exactly the, not, the issue I'm trying to get to. Yes, and has not historically been associated. And... Um, those churches tend to be, if, if you look at them, tend to be more hyper-self-conscious about their black identity and um, often tend to be more ideologically oriented 
than mm-hmm. the traditional black church. Uh, they they tend to look at themselves as progressive, more progressive, but often in terms of um, what's being done and what's being carried out and, and, and what historically has been their role, they are no more progressive than progressive black churches and other denominations. But they tend, because they're in white denominations, to often be more uh, hyper-self-conscious about their black identity and tend to use a lot of labels to define themselves. Um, and it's, it's sort of like some uh, some people who some people who are committed to Afrocentricity. I see these people all the time going to white churches, and I always found it a curious phenomenon because when you need a costume to define your identity, you're already in trouble. And so when we talk about the black church, we're talking about the rank and file of black churches and black denominations who have carried the burden in the heat of the day, the burden of survival the burden of manufacturing meaning for people in an absurd situation, the burden of keeping people whole through a liturgical practice that evolved as an adaptation to oppressive and traumatic circumstances. That, for me, is a core black church. Uh, it's not defined by commitment to a set of theological or ideological propositions. It is defined by that surging spirituality that I talked about in the beginning that helps us preserve some semblance of health and wholeness in the midst of the absurdity of our situation. Mm-hmm. So, I, so so, when we talk about the black church, I want to get more substance in. I, 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 we're not talking about everybody's protest church. We're talking about Eatonville, uh, Zora Neale Hurston, rather than perhaps a Richard Wright orientation, if we put it in literary categories, to what the black church really is. Mm-hmm. And what mm-hmm. the potential is. One of the reasons that I think, for those of you who are listening, why this is this construct is so important, is because even today, the Washington Examiner reported that Reverend William Owens, president of the 1300 member coalition of African American pastors, is calling on the 1300 member coalition. Uh, to boycott President Obama because he did not appear at their meeting, and they they made a um, a statement about it, um, um, and and the statement said, and and I'd like to get your comments about it. By embracing gay marriage, President Obama is leading the country down an immoral path. Some things are bigger than the next election. And they went on to say in this statement, in the midst of this great moral struggle, we are also asking the great AME Church to reaffirm biblical views on marriage that is between one man and one woman. The AME Church has not taken a position on this important issue in more than 20 years, and it's time to get off the sidelines. We were once proud of President Obama, but our pride has turned to shame. And for those of you who are listening, who would like to get in on this news story that broke just to, just this afternoon, uh, you can go to ReaganCoalition.com, and I'm posting it in our chat room for those of you who are interested in reading this article. I think that that's very important because when you read something like that and, you, and you're listening to um, uh, who is the – who, who are they talking about, the African-American pastors, 1,300 members? 
Well, you just uh, you just uh, um, opened up a, a variety of issues that I want to try to speak to as succinctly uh, and directly as I can, because they're extremely important. Important for a variety of reasons. Uh, first, um, one one of the things that this points out is what I was getting at in the beginning when I talked about the heterogeneity of black church, is that every manifestation of spirituality uh, or black religion in the black community is not healthy. Every manifestation is not conscious. I talked minutes ago about those who are perhaps in some ways hyper-self-conscious, but that's a whole heck of a lot better than people who are unconscious. And the fact that these gentlemen suddenly have made, or gentlemen and and perhaps women, um, who have made gay marriage uh, a core issue for the African-American community, uh, they have allowed themselves to be hoodwinked by a movement started in the 70s by three Republicans who initiated the creation of the moral majority, which attempted attempted or set out to recapture the moral high ground after the 60s when black people established the moral and theological discourse to define the nation and its spiritual drift. They wanted to, to take that high ground back. And what they chose was these individualistic issues, single issues, that did not really implicate structures, institutions, historical oppression, and so forth, as their issues, as a way of reclaiming or claiming their hold uh, on the spiritual language and rhetoric and, and, and issues of what is important in the church. And unfortunately, these well-meaning men have fallen victim to that, because gay marriage is not what is so vital to the African-American community. Another assumption that they make is uh, they make several assumptions I want to point out here that's very dangerous. One is the assumption that America is somehow going awry, that if America as a nation recognizes the rights of gay to marry, gays to marry, that it has gone morally awry. Well, when was America morally upright? Particularly the black folk. So I don't understand these black people who suddenly feel that they have to save Christian America. Because it was never Christian to me, and it was never Christian to them. It was not and is not. And if we don't change our theological orientation, it will not be. Uh, It's Christian to be committed and devoted to the ideals that you espouse. And it does not mean that the church cannot define for itself and for Christians what marriage is. For Christians, marriage is between a man and a woman. I affirm that. But a nation that has committed itself to the equality of all peoples has to some degree a very serious obligation to recognize the rights of all to pursue life, liberty, and happiness as they see fit so long as it does not interfere with the rights of others. So I don't see how you can avoid when the founding fathers expressively established the Bill of Rights to protect the minority from the tyranny of the majority. I don't see how you can avoid giving gays the right to marry. I don't see how you can do that and remain committed to the ideals upon which our republic is founded. Now, under the larger umbrella of freedom of speech and freedom of religion, we then have the right to say, as a Christian church, we define marriage this way. So if you want to be a Christian, then here's what we think or how we think or how the church thinks you should conduct your life. And that's what we do. And it maybe is high time that we draw a sharper distinction between 
civil religion and the religion of the Christian faith. I don't see it as a threat to the church at all for the nation to own up to its ideals and grant gays the right to marry. I don't see that as a threat to the church. In fact, what it does is more sharply distinguishes the church and its commitment to values and ideals uh, from the rest of civil society. Now, there are some people in America that don't want to see that, particularly white folk, who tend to think that American and Christian is synonymous, and America, capitalism, and Christianity, and democracy are all interchangeable terms. Well, the fact of the matter is they are not, nor have they ever been in practice in America, interchangeable terms. There's nothing inherently Christian about capitalism. There's nothing inherently evil about socialism. There's nothing inherently, um, uh, uh, well, I do think there's some inherently good things about democracy, however, because it, in principle, proceduralizes the values of equality and justice for all. So there's inherently good things there. But these institutions themselves must be measured by the standards of the gospel in practice and not simply be ideological commitments identified with the Christian faith. So I don't see these gentlemen as uh, holding up the bloodstained banner in any meaningful sense when it comes to the church. I see them as part of a larger thrust of religion and of other forms of fascism to impose their will on the lives of others. Uh, why, why are we so uncomfortable? We have people who are out here who have serial marriages. They think that it is, it is somehow more holy to have three or four different marriages than it is to have sex outside of marriage. So they end up trivializing the institution of marriage and turning it into the new going steady because they don't know how to forgive and they don't know how to work through problems because they have this very rigid moral perspective that ultimately does not conform to the realities of life. I don't think this is healthy. And so we need to all stop for a minute and reassess really in practice what some of these hard and fast ideological rules that we have established uh, reassess the toll that it has taken on society and on our society and on our future. Gay mm-hmm. marriage is, is not our issue. What, is, what our issue is right now is jobs. What our issue is justice. Our issue needs to be the Voting Rights Act that they're getting ready to take from us. I haven't seen these people rally in an attempt to thwart the efforts of 38 states, uh, or 34 states around the country, to come up with new ways of keeping people from voting, particularly black people and poor people, people who have historically been disenfranchised. They're not up in arms about that. They're up in arms about gay marriage. And I find that extremely problematic because the fact of the matter is that this assault on voting rights, as uh, Reverend Sharpton has pointed out, that there's an assault on voting rights. But the deeper meaning of this is that the South is now exporting the ideals of the Civil War in Jim Crow to northern states. Pennsylvania being one of those states, for instance, that's instituting these new uh, restrictions and the need for voter IDs in order to vote. So while we're worried about and preoccupied with the rights of people to do what they choose with their own lives, the South is exporting the Civil War as though it had never been fought and won. And black people are once again being sacrificed on the altar of uh, white America's uh, sense of unification against those who are other or outside. That's what we should be rallying about, rallying for something and not against people who just want to live their lives the way they choose. Well, 
I I think that you just hooked it all uh, because one of the things I wanted to discuss with you is your book, are are parts of your book, The Tragic Vision of African American Religion. And for those of you who have not read this book and you understand the exodus and the bridges between community development, religion, and religious presence, religious the 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 presence of religious institutions in our cultural socioeconomic affairs. You should read the book, and we are talking with the author tonight about the Black Church on Fire. Because indeed, just by this news this afternoon, it shows us it is self-destructing. Um, one of the things, Reverend Johnson, I want to point out is that this is coming from a group called the ReaganCoalition.com. 1,300, they say they are African-American pastors. The ReaganCoalition.com certainly weighs in my thinking that this is a group of black conservatives who supported the administration, administrative policies of the Reagan administration. It is also being published, this letter, in the Washington Examiner. So we've got to be real careful and really understand what some of these issues are. For those of you who are just joining us, you're listening to Our Common Ground. Our guest tonight is Dr. Matthew V. Johnson, Sr. He's author a scholar, theological scholar, and pastor. Uh, Reverend Johnson, in your in your book, The Tragic Vision of African American Religion, you have two chapters that really caught my attention so much that I went back and read both of them twice. One is chapter three when you when you take a look through. Uh, <clears throat> through the black church, and you call it a look beneath the souls of black folks, reflecting on what what Dr. W.E.B. Du Bois wrote about the culture and the structure of black society in this country. And the other chapter is Life Within the Veil, because there you introduce uh, significant features that we relate to in the black church, the music, the preaching, um, the expression of, con- of of Christian consciousness. Um, I'm trying to think. You 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 gave it a word. Uh, you gave it some some iconic words: preaching, music, and drama. And it wasn't drama. Pardon me. The and frenzy. I was borrowing yes. from the, uh, Dr. Du Bois: the preaching, the music, yes. and the frenzy. So. Um, Talk to us about the the souls of black folks in the context of these churches, of our churches and our and our history. All right, I'm looking through this. I'm looking. And when did the now. church start falling apart? What happened? Well, well, once again, we don't want to assume that the church was ever a seamless whole. It was not. Um, nor has, have our responses to our position, our predicament as African Americans ever been seamless. It's been fragmented, as our experiences have been fragmented. But we 
been able in significant times to pull enough of those fragments together to create a kind of center or anchor that helped hold the community together. Uh, we don't seem to be able to do that uh, as well now, to get as many of those fragments or enough to create a critical mass for the center as we have been before. And I think uh, that, that's where we are. I think what happened was there was a variety of things. Um, there is There are some ways uh, in which African Americans have not been getting healthier uh, spiritually or mentally uh, over the course of what looks like um, civil, political, and economic progress. There are some ways where we are as sick as we have ever been, um, particularly with respect to our need for recognition and acceptance at a psychological and emotional level, and don't underestimate its power because we categorize them that way, by white folk. Our need to be a part of this magnificent illusion uh, referred to as America. Um, we, 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 we are a marginalized group of people, and for any marginalized group, that status brings with it certain uh, anomie, a certain sense of alienation, a certain sense of hunger for belonging, to locate. And that can be easily exploited. And I think that throughout our history, from Jim Jones to uh, less extreme forms, white folk have found out that black people tend to be an easy mark at that level um, because we so want to be but so badly want to be a part that they've been able to exploit it and I think this new conservative uh, ideological thrust by identifying certain political and civil positions with the name of Jesus has tapped into that and has made us vulnerable to being distracted from what should be the real aims and objectives of us as a collective spiritual community. Um, so I, I think that's kind of kind of where we are. Now, at the level of those three things that you uh, pointed out that I use, categories I use in my book, the preaching, because they're fairly simple and easily recognizable, the preaching, the music, and the frenzy, uh, Du Bois points out that the most devoutly believed in was the frenzy. The frenzy refers to what you and I remember as getting happy or shouting, which has become something else in recent years. It has been reduced to a kind of just making noise in church, which is kind of a caricature, not kind of, which is a caricature of what highbrow religionists and many white folk assumed we were doing because they did not understand the depth of black spirituality, nor uh, from whence it came. Why? Because in order to recognize the depth of black spirituality, they would have had to recognize and accept as legitimate our pain. And then our pain would place a claim, a moral claim, on America that indicts it and all its boastful pretensions of being the land of the free and the home of the brave. So consequently, they have a structural inability to embrace the reality of black pain historically 
and and you can see the revisionist historians who wanted to write history as though black people were happy on the plantation, eating eating watermelon and dancing around at Christmas and entertaining the masters. Um, but the fact of the matter is, black people were not. They were in very serious pain and anguish. And everyone knows that the tragic spirit is closely related to the comic spirit. And so we found ways, creative cultural ways, to respond to our pain. But don't confuse that with being slap-happy and carefree. That was the caricature. Well, that's almost what has happened now with this newfound uh, sense of joy uh, in, in many of these uh, superficially Pentecostalized uh, black churches where people come to church uh, and and uh, demonstrate a lot of excitement and exuberance as if all is well and then creep back to their homes and hovels in utter misery because their families are broken, kids are in jail, strung out on drugs, parents are suffering from all type of internal diseases associated with uh, internal and excessive uh, stresses in the, Af- the African-American community. Um, so that kind of cheap joy trivializes what was called the frenzy and how that was related to who black people were spiritually and culturally in America. The frenzy was the shout. That's when, when basically, in, in very simple language, where we created a space during worship, a psychological and spiritual space, an emotional space, an intellectual space where we were able to throw off for a moment the stress and the stressors that defined us in ways that degraded our being and embrace a higher level of spiritual affirmation that allows us, allowed us to experience momentarily the ecstasy of wholeness in, in, in the, before God in the, and in the context of worship and liturgy. And that opened up the the resurgent rivers of energy that burst forth in the scream and the shout and the frenzy in black worship. That is very different from just a whole lot of people standing up and clapping on cue and making a whole lot of noise and being led mindlessly by a cheerleader in the pulpit who no longer operate by the canons of the preaching tradition our forefathers established. Historically, where did this, um, I, I want to talk about the historical uh, shift in paradigm within within the black church. In your book, you talk about the music as an anchor in the church. And I'm wondering if because there were external forces uh, really led by some uh, external thought that, that said, oh, black people are just wonderful. They have such wonderful music in their churches. And we began to focus on that. And I also want to talk about the frenzy. Um, in our last discussion, we talked about whether or not the frenzy was authentic or whether it was a cover for some of the external emotional turmoil that black people have uh, sometimes. Well, you, I, you have to check this because I don't know because I'm not a psychologist and you yeah, are. Th- th- those, are, those are not mutually exclusive. It was okay. both. What made it authentic was that it was an expression of of our of our 
I don't want to frame it. So part of the reason with understanding African-American religion is we've accepted certain categories that refract our understanding. Um, so when you set questions up a certain way, you make yourself vulnerable to certain um, uh, inflections and misinterpretations. But the frenzy emerged, first of all, as part of our African tradition um, in terms of us being open to and receptive to the spirit or the spirit of the gods or gods or God, so that we understood life and the boundary between time and eternity is much more fluid than traditional white liturgical orientations understood. So there was a certain kind of fluidity of exchange between levels of being that's endemic to African culture that we naturally brought with us. They couldn't beat that out of us because it was a part of who we are. It wasn't what we thought. It wasn't what we said. It was what we were. And what, we are, and what I still think in many ways we are. And if you don't believe me, you let uh, Mary J. Blige or Fantasia singing an um, uh, R&B song really get into it, and you see it becomes church. And becomes church not only for them, but all the rest of the black folks sitting in the audience. So that deep structure is still there. So part of that kind of expression, which, which reaches a certain kind of intense climatic moment in the frenzy, is very much a part of our African heritage. Uh, number two, it, it, the nature of its expression in America is conditioned by the unique circumstances of American oppression, slavery, Jim Crow, and the kind of marginalization and cultural alienation that we've experienced historically in this country. So that becomes another factor in terms of shaping how it is expressed. But it is an, or an authentic expression, or an expression rather, of authentic spirituality. It doesn't make it any less authentic because we can identify the conditions that bring it about, nor does it necessarily make it any less divine, because we know that, that God has an imminent side that works within the structure of reality, as well as a transcendent dimension um, that speaks to us from outside of our reality. So God can be both particle and wave, so to speak. So it, it can remain very much divine, remain very much authentic, but also very much tied to the concrete circumstances of its expression. But there was a We're going to take a break the, okay. because ahead, the next question. question I I really uh, would like to see you talk about this frenzy thing and how it connects to uh, open and new opportunities for um, this prosperity to be so attractive in our community and. Also, when we come back from the break, to really talk about what prosper the prosperity movement inside the traditional black church is doing to disengage and, as you have been noted to say, to be divisive. You're listening to Our Common Ground. I'm Janice Graham. And when we come back from this break at 347-838-9852, you can participate in this conversation with our guest tonight, again coming to our common ground, Dr. Matthew V. Johnson from the Good Shepherd Church Baptist in Atlanta, Georgia. He is a noted author, and we have been referencing his book, The Tragic Vision of African American Religion. We hope you'll stay with us. We'll be right back. I'm Janice Graham, and you're listening to Our Common Ground. 
around you. One in four kids in the U.S. faces hunger. It's not always easy to see the signs, but in this land of plenty, there are kids that don't know where they will get their next meal. Join Share Our Strength in Food Network and take the pledge to end childhood hunger here in America by 2015. Learn how at nokidhungry.org. Their next meal could come from you. Republican Congress is looking to defund parts of Dodd-Frank. In the face of these losses, of this risk-taking, why aren't the Democrats out pointing the fingers to saying they will be responsible should there be a need for government to step in with another bailout of banks because of this risk, about of these risky derivatives of trading? Why aren't the Democrats pointing the fingers at the people who are standing in the way of reforming the financial institute? That's malpractice, malfeasance, and it's message. And to me, it just simply seems, and I know, I, I'm not I know because they're getting money from these same financial institutions to stall get this into, but if Republicans are playing cutthroat politics, why are the Democrats playing that? And why can't they be on the offensive? And that, that's the first thing. Here's the second charge. You've got the Republicans beating this old message of debt. You got Mitt Romney standing in front of a dead clock now. And that will be the narrative. And the Democrats, you don't see this coming? You don't see this narrative coming as they force another debt fight. As they The best of political talkback, common sense, right from the concrete. Urban, progressive, politics. 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 Friday night at TruthWorks Network. 10 p.m., Alpha drills down deep the lies, the conspiracies in politics. It's just damn politics. The Alpha Show. is our common ground. Broadcasting bold, brave, and black. You'd better know. about 
the transition, transformation, and changes that the prosperity movement is bringing, the lack of engagement. Dr. Johnson, again, thank you for uh, being with us tonight. Uh, Before we went on break, uh, we were talking about, uh, I wanted to get some discussion from you uh, about the whole issue of the frenzy. Uh, as you characterize it in your book, The Tragic Vision of African-American Religion. And I want to tell you, there's such good stuff in this book, but it is a study. It is not just a book to read. It is a study. On the other hand, your book, The Cicada Song, I could read by music and really be in the story. But Tragic Vision, I think that... You have brought a new voice and a very important critical eye to our understanding about the black church history and black religious tradition and the reality of what it has meant and where it has missed the mark. Yeah, I, I am, I'm strongly considering um I've been outlining and wondering if I should uh, write a more popular version um, that's accessible uh, to the literate lay and and preaching public. And the title I have for it is called um, Amid the Ruins, Still the Beauty. And I'm thinking... uh, (laughs) You're such a brilliant brother. Now, that would be it. Yeah, I, I borrowed that phrase. I can't claim that I came up with that one. I... I saw it in a, in a wonderful book written on uh, Ernest, Ernest Hemingway and his and the relationship between he and his boat in his later years. But uh, so I borrowed the phrase, but it seems so apt and so appropriate mm-hmm. that I use it as a category in a class I was teaching on the tragic vision out in uh, at San Francisco Theological Seminary this summer, and it worked so well for helping me simplify uh, some of the, the uh, theoretical conclusions I came to. Um, and in a popular book, I wouldn't have the onus on me to make a case in the same way and for the same community that I had to make it in the initial text. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I'm strongly considering you, that if, if there's an interest in it, I'll write it. If not, uh, I can You definitely time make the else. arguments in such detail with such great references. Um, you know, I hadn't uh, read anything um, urgent about the black church where Howard Thurman and Dwight Hopkins and C. Eric Lincoln and and some people I didn't I, I didn't know, like Charles Long, I, I, I didn't know him. But then when I read the book, my brain went, Woo woo my kindergarten teacher was his was his grandmother or great grandmother, I'm not sure which one. But uh, but thank you for the book. And uh, for those of you, don't let us scare you from buying the book and reading it. Um, it is well worth the study. Uh, and it is, <coughs> excuse me, it is the contemporary primer on understanding the black church. And once you understand the black church in that kind of historical and scholarly detail, then you can begin to understand why, Reverend Johnson, 
you would would title the popular book uh, with the phrase "The Ruins." Made the ruins still the beauty. Right. Um, let's talk for a few minutes, and we've got some callers on the line, but let's talk for a few minutes about this whole frenzy. And I asked the question whether or not the manifestation of what we have known as religious drama activity uh, and, as you called it, getting happy, um, is really more than the religious a religious experience. Well, uh, yeah, well, that's the... the you know, the, I, I mean, all of us, everybody out there listening can say that they know somebody who's constantly testifying and has a testimony that's and not can't what I'm seem talking. to... That's not, that's not what okay, I'm talking about. Okay, go ahead. And that's, mm-hmm. and that's important to understand that. I'm not talking about a testimony. Nor am I talking about people just making noise in church. My point is that what happened in the frenzy was expressive of something very profound that was a part of the ongoing cultural and and spiritual process of adapting creatively to preserve sanity in an absurd situation. I'm not so sure that what people, many people are doing in in these newer movements, uh, in fact, in many cases I am sure, it is not the same thing. In other words, it's gesture without act. It, it, it's um, form without substance mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they're disconnected from the roots of black spirituality. And that does not go to the frenzy so much as the easiest place to look is the other two um, uh, categories, and that's in the preaching and the music. When we saw the music change in the 80s, the music changed for a couple of reasons uh, that are very significant. The music began to change because white fundamentalist preachers began to tell black people, and black people began to believe it that their music was not uh, authentically Christian because it was about experience and wasn't expressive of Scripture. Now, there are certain sectors of the black church that were more vulnerable to the voice of white preachers, and that came from from some of the uh, further reaches of Pentecostalism. And uh, those preachers and those folk who were associated with some of the Assemblies of God movements and so forth. Um, but certain, certain, certain of those preachers still retained their hold on their tradition. Uh, uh, Carlton Pearson was, was one. I mean, he, he, he performed an almost heroic feat of staying in that community over there, but somehow keeping himself anchored um, within the tradition. I think ultimately that's what led to his, his real downfall was that he, Carlton Pearson would, would not, I don't know if he wouldn't let it go or he wouldn't let go of him, but he, he, mm-hmm. he stayed there. And I think that it would be a great loss to all of us to let uh, 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 Reverend Pearson, Carlton, go by the wayside. I just wanted to say now, that. Now, explain, explain to our my audience who Carlton Pearson is. Carlton Pearson, well, I think your audience probably knows who Carlton Pearson is. He was one of the biggest in the 80s and 90s, one of the biggest... Um, televangelist from the Pentecostal wing of the church. He was very much a part of that Oklahoma crowd, that uh, western, southwestern crowd that uh, was very fundamentalist in their orientation and sort of led the way for the the blossoming of this prosperity stuff in the black community. 
Um, he was on television. They, they know who Carl Pearson is. He was very much in the, in the music business and so forth. But I'm saying he's an exception. Um, a lot of the music was impacted by that, by that thing I just named, this tendency to criticize our tradition as being based on experience. All, all Christian music is based on experience. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound is. Could it be that I should gain? These are all talking about experiences. But somehow black experience was not legitimate. And these black folk bought it. They bought it for a number of reasons. They bought it, one, because black people have this need in many cases to be affirmed by white folk, and they think that white folk should provide the ruling criteria for what is right and wrong uh, for them. Uh, it, it, doesn't, it doesn't matter that we understand it. Just do it the way white folk do it, and suddenly we're magically comported to the land of Wrightville. Uh, that, that, unfortunately, is how some of us operate, even when we say we think otherwise. Uh, the, the other part of that, uh, that part is that gospel became increasingly commercialized as people descended savagely almost on the black tradition in music, uh, almost raping the tradition. Uh, like strip mining for gold out west in order to transform it into capital. And so in order to, it, they, they, many would-be, wannabe entertainers uh, saw gospel now in this whole burgeoning Christian market that attempted to be counterculture, but it wasn't countercultural at all. It was acculturation. And what they did was they assailed, uh, when they found out that there was a market out there for stuff that sounded black, um, and there was a, a market in a crossover where people could become stars on the Christian network. They just assailed the tradition and, 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 and I think ripped it apart. And then what we did was then we began to take it and reintroduce it into our churches so that we began to break down the communal aspects of singing, for instance, because there was a time pretty much when all of us knew the songs. So the singing even when the choir sang, it was a communal experience. Nobody was locked out. You didn't have to go to the choir rehearsal to sing along from the congregation. But now more and more, we have bought into this, put the words up on the screen and follow the music. This almost proto-fascist kind of control over people's sentiment, thoughts, and emotions that doesn't allow for the free play and the creativity in the black church that was a spiritual counterpart, the religious counterpart, rather, to jazz. We're losing that. Because we, we're, we're putting a straight jacket on it that's more reminiscent of white traditions and orientation to religion than the free play of black creativity in church. And so this music and the transformation of our music is impacting the communal spirit of the church so that people are becoming more and more conditioned, e e even though they, are, they seem to be involved, they're actually becoming more conditioned to passively, to, to experience religion passively. Um, even when folks shout, for instance, they shout on cue. They shout when they're told to at the appropriate time. And then they sit down with, with pen and pencil during the sermon as if they're taking notes in class and listen to a class lecture, as if that's what a sermon should be. And it, and it is not uh -huh. what a sermon should be. Yeah, Bob's uh -huh. going for that. You know, one of the things, when you say that, one of the things that makes me kind of chuckle is that when you go into most black churches now, you see women, they don't just have a purse, they got a suit, uh, a briefcase going in the church, and they're taking out their Bibles, and they're, um, 
and they're taking out the notebooks, and some of them have uh, tape recorders, and I mean, and you kind of We've go, been doing that for 10, 15, 20 years now. We have more kids in jail than we've ever had before. Public education is disintegrating. The gap between the have and the have-nots are widening. The gap between the black haves, I mean, the black have-nots and the white haves uh, is widening. Um, we're still suffering. Our conditions are getting worse. The black underclass is becoming expendable. And we in church taking notes for the last 15, 20 years. Really? What are we yeah. learning? So sooner or later, uh-huh. somebody has got to start connecting the dots. But let me add to that the increase of mental illness and depression in our community has tripled over the last uh, 10 years. And I I want to submit to you that it has tripled parallel the disintegration of traditional religious forms because traditional liturgical, it's one of the points I make in my book, performed a therapeutic function. And by therapeutic, I don't mean it just made you feel good. You felt better because you were better. Now, you you know, you still need, if you have mental illness, I would strongly recommend that that you get and seek um, professional care Care. from a professional Mm -hmm. care provider who's capable of responding uh, in a way that's realistic and sympathetic to your reality, because we have as many mixed-up psychologists, therapists, and psychiatrists out there as we do preachers. Yeah. I just want to make ask you to comment also on the idea, especially for women. I read an article uh, just this week which says that black women are more religious from some poll. I wish I had printed out the article, but I didn't. The article does appear on the Our Common Ground Facebook page as well as the Our Common Ground Community Forum, which you can find at ourcommonground-talk.ning.com. But it, it points out that black women are more religious than any other group of people in this country. And one of my concerns is that black women used to seek both status, um, community interest, and sanctuary in the black church. But you have black churches who are not defending black women in regard to their reproductive rights. You have black churches who have conflicts of interest because they somehow confirm uh, an inferior status of women in the church. And going back to your comments, your earlier comments, black women mostly suffer more depression in our community and they're not having a sanctuary in which to seek relief because the church has somehow caught onto this notion that black women are buying into the notion of black women are super women. I don't, I don't, I, don't, I can't agree with you. Uh, that's that's not the problem. That's 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 missing the problem. The problem, I mean, once you state that black women are more religious, 
then okay, then you got to talk about if they're more religious and then have the problems that you identified, then what's wrong with the religion? That's the question. Mm. Um, so that, you know, it, it, just because they're more religious doesn't mean that that's necessarily a good thing. If the religion is pathological, it means black women are sicker than other women in the country. Yes, yes. And that would be consistent with the things that you and just they identified. Speak more. So, yeah. Well, yeah. Well, well, and if, if and if what they're doing with their religion, or what they're doing in terms of spirituality, is is either just aggravating the wound, or or denying the wound, or evading their reality, um, then they're going to keep getting sicker. And I think what the religion that we are beginning to integrate into what once was, I think, what I call traditional African-American spirituality, is a religion of denial. It is a defensive apparatus designed to avoid coming to terms with the reality of your pain and its circumstances, uh, rather than something that negotiates it, helps you to recognize it, and, and therefore deal with it more effectively. Which, if you read my book, you know, ultimately, that's what I say African-American religion did. It allowed you to look at the horror without being destroyed by it or without the necessity of denial. So it allowed you to embrace the reality of your suffering at the same time uh, enabling you to come to terms with it and live with the uncertainty but recognize your circumstances for what they were. And that is the reality of your pain. Now in church, a lot of what you're getting is a denial of it or an, an ideological expression of it that really doesn't existentially reverberate or resonate with the people you're intended to speak to. Uh, I mean, T.D. Jake standing up, uh, giving a pop psychological diagnosis of a condition of black women is not the same thing as a liturgical expression of our suffering and pain, both in sermon and song, that they can organically tap into. Those are two different things. So um, are, you saying, are you saying that women aren't thou art loose? <laughs> I know. T- 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 um, okay, but you're you're. Yeah, that. I would have to. I would have to flush out the specific kinds of things. For instance, in my in, in my parents' generation, black people, especially women, found purpose. Outside of their jobs, most of the women were domestic workers or maids or whatever, but they found purpose because they had to organize the fundraising. They had to organize um, um, fundraisers to fix the organ or buy new curtains for the parsonage or or buy new Sunday school books or new Bibles or replace the carpeting. Uh, so they did dinners and they had bake sales and candy sales and they were the leadership part of the church for children. So I think we, we with all of this, we have lost some purpose. But uh, Dr. Johnson, we're going to have to go to our phones. We've had some people waiting for a long time. Uh, and I want to take some of these calls. Okay, I want to be clear. Uh, some of those, some of those questions I didn't get to finish uh, uh, answering, so we may have to return we'll, to them. At we'll some we'll point. get we'll get to them. <laughs> Let's go to seven seven three in Chicago. Good evening, 
thank you for joining us at Our Common Ground. I respect you with Dr. Matthew Johnson. Hello? 773? Oh, oh, I'm here. I'm, I, I had fallen asleep. Did you fall asleep? I'm sorry. I had, I had been holding the line for a while, so... Okay, your complaint is, is taken. Good evening, Janice. We, and, we uh, apologize. Well, Reverend Johnson, uh, and I've got, I'm going to be very, very brief because I try not to offend in this uh, particular area. And I see the participation of our religion and our beliefs as, as black people. We uh, hold fast to the teachings of whoever is doing the teaching at the pulpit. But does that are we being done a disservice because the attacks on our people and our culture are coming from a political direction, they're coming from a social direction, they're coming from the judicial direction, they're coming from all directions, and all we have to do is sit and pray and rock back and forth and sing old Negro spirituals because one side is being taught that and they're couching their beliefs and their political agenda on the on their religion and their bible to uh put forth this anti-abortion to put forth this uh anti-social programs to put forth this we won't do what Jesus would do we will do what our political ideology uh dictates that we do and it's not, and as uh, Janice, as uh, Frank Schaefer would say, this is nothing more than uh, religion posing as politics. And we're being done a disservice by the people who are, have taken advantage of the gathering. As we see the, the uh, parishioners, the number, the level of parishioners shrink. And the, as the generations move on, we see fewer and fewer young people who are willing to participate because they have somehow lost faith in the word or in the preaching. And I just find it, you know, um, ironic that we gather, and that's the one place that we can, the most of us can gather at any given time, and yet we're still being uh, fed a disservice in how many times or how many weeks in a row can you simply be taught the word and without being taught, you know, the basics of, you know, what is affecting your life more than anything else? Well, I agree with you. I think I think in any church that um, is not speaking, that's not making the word speak uh, relevantly to your predicament and to our predicament as a people, you're being done a disservice. Or any gospel, or any part of the of, of the Bible that I wouldn't call I hesitate to call it gospel. Any part of the Bible that's being used and exploited to circumvent facing certain fundamental realities, or to throw a shroud over systemic exploitation and injustice, is doing you a disservice. Absolutely. But I do think the leaders that do that, or the, the pastors that do that are a reflection of the people that choose them and follow them. I don't think that they, they are completely responsible because, uh, and I, I know of churches 
that that in fact I just uh, I just left one about four or five years ago. Uh, um, um, well, they had some internal other internal problems, but this is one of the issues that I had with the church, and that is that they did not want me to, to mention um, anything relevant to black people. This was on the eve of Barack Obama being nominated. As a matter of fact, I was attacked by church members for suggesting that a black man could be or should be president. It was a church that belonged to the Southern Baptists. Now, I was the pastor, and I was on the other end of it. So I think many churches do their pastors a disservice by making it also impossible for them to speak meaningfully about the reality of their circumstances because they've been hoodwinked into believing that um, to talk about the reality of your suffering and from whence it comes and how to overcome it is somehow talking politics. That's not politics, that's life. And I don't and I don't think life fits into these neatly carved up categories that emerge from the white university discipline or disciplinary orientation. Life is more than that. Well Reverend Johnson, would you say that uh aside from religion, politics has to be one of the most important things that uh really affect us as a people? I would say politics and economics. I think I think yes, it, it affects us, but often politics uh, are a reflection of the very powerful economic interests that remain hidden behind the scenes, but nevertheless determine your options within your political reality. So politics, economics, and culture, because so much of, for instance, we say we say politics, but let's look at culture. America has something deeply embedded, and Black people have internalized it called anti-intellectualism. In other words, we tend to poo-poo or to uh, uh, low-rate anything that doesn't sound like something we've heard before, or we're taught to fear intelligence, or somehow taught to believe that intelligence is contrary to spirituality. That's in the culture of America. We we glorify George, George Bush and um, and um, and I'm not one of these people who just want to bash Bush all the time, but we glorify white people glorify them as uh, just a common man. Well, that's why we got these uncommon problems. You don't need a common man in the presidency, but you need an exceptional person, man or woman, in the presidency. You don't need a common. So this glorification of of as if somehow stupidity is a reflection of innocence is absurd. But that's part of the culture. Consequently, you consistent that's a part of the culture, then you consistently pick stupid leaders and then act surprised when they do stupid things and put us in the predicament that we're in, and we act surprised. So when you look at it, it's a direct connection between politics, the, econ- the economic debacle that was the result of putting stupid leaders in place who pushed ideologies that reduced regulations that brought about this disaster. So all of it, once again, is a part of what life is and does not simply conform to the categories of politics, economics, and culture so that you can distinguish them easily from something like your spirituality. Well, uh, let me finish with this. Uh, the, To me, the prosperity ministries took uh, a few steroid tablets when W. Bush decided to buy off, uh, bribe off ministers such as uh, T.D. Jakes and Creflo Dollar with the um, uh, uh, initiatives, and they simply filled their pockets with money so that they could, and use them as proxy surrogates. Uh, 
to preach to the blacks in their congregation to convince them that somehow the Republican way was the best way. Thank you very much, Janice. I think you're right. Thank you, Alpha, for for your call. Um, I think he's on target. Well, that's Alpha of the Alpha Show, who that can be heard on TruthWorks Network every Friday night at 10 p.m. And he brings it that way, and he is always uh, focusing on the common sense notion of what people do and and how we inform our politics. But I I think that one of the things, it gets back to a question that uh, I wanted to hear you um, examine, and that is the question of what is this prosperity gospel? And what kind of damage, we all see the damage, we all see the symptoms of it, but we haven't put it into a list. What is prosperity gospel? It's the gospel that God wants you to be rich. That somehow, that, that, that and see, and this gets kind of tricky to define it because it really isn't anything much more than a hustle, a sophisticated, relatively sophisticated hustle. And so they get very slippery when you try to tie them down. Um, but what they do effectively is communicate to people that the Bible contains principles that if you follow them, you release your faith. And the consequence of this faith being released is to bring you financial prosperity. That's what it's about. That the gospel is about giving you prosperity. God wants you to be prosperous. And unfortunately, it uses prosperity then as the interpretive lens or the hermeneutical lens for interpreting the Bible rather than the cross of Christ as the hermeneutical lens for interpreting the Bible. So it displaces the dollar sign, effectively displaces the cross as the primary symbol of the faith. I don't care what else they say. That's what it is. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Now, talk about how we get pimped and, and, and well, I don't know. Uh, I'll take that word back, but then I'll put it back because I think that that is a good description of how we get in our community economically pimped. Um, uh, by some forms of this theological principle being placed before our our community, and and it is true that even though most Americans are moving away from being active religiously by attending churches or participating in churches. Uh, a 10-year study just showed that. It was just released, I think, a couple of – it was in the New York Times a, a couple of weeks ago. Black participation and black membership is not decreasing at the same rate. So there are many who say that the prosperity gospel, which says that if you build the church, if you – give and make your offerings 
solely to the church to build the church, that is the way you gain this prosperity. Explain, talk about the socioeconomic destructive forces of this movement. I'm not sure I would phrase that that's what they're saying that way. Um, um, I'm, I'm not. I'm not sure that, that that's simply what it's saying. Mm-hmm. I, th- I, th- I think it's even more pernicious than that. I, th- I think what they're saying is that religion is a good is 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 nothing more than an investment. To give a certain amount to God, you got a guaranteed return, and you get a guaranteed return in kind. So by giving money, God's going to give you back much more money than you gave. Because um, building the church could mean a lot of things. Okay, so that's what it says. Yeah, it depends on how you define church. I don't think what they're doing is building a church. See, that's that's that that is why I, I sort of resist um, accepting that phraseology because the church is something else. It's cer- it's it's certainly not these centers where people go to be indoctrinated because they think that the indoctrination is going to make them wealthy. That's mm-hmm. not a church to me. And I'm glad they stopped using the term church. And a lot of these people are using things like center, because that's what it is. It's an indoctrination and an acculturation center. It's an outpost. It's a cultural outpost of of um, crude capitalist thinking um, and the reduction of everything to money. It's a crude outpost. Uh, it's not a church. And so I'm, I'm glad they don't even use the term anymore. But that, But that's what they... They, they teach. So in other words, give God your money. I'm the banker. I'm God's bank. Give God your money. Give me your money. And um, and God will make you prosperous uh, because you're given. And because you follow these principles, whatever they happen to be. Uh-huh. But the, uh-huh. fa- but the, fact, but the fact of the matter is uh, there are limited resources. There is a system of distribution of opportunities, jobs, and wealth. And it is structured. It, 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 it's, it's, I know it's a, the fallacy of a certain consequence, but the assumption is: listen, if this is if, if serving God makes you wealthy, then rich folk must be holy. But I remember Mama saying: if religion was something that money could buy, then a rich would live and a poor would die. That's what we used to say. You don't, you're not going to hear that anymore. No, I don't think you're going to hear that from anyone. <laughs> so, if, so then, so, so then, if we understand, I want you to see the deeper racial implications of this. So that if we understand white folk, and I, I put that in quotes, as those who have everything, then that must be the right way to be, because they're blessed. Uh-huh. If having things, they're the people who they're the distribute wealth distributors. So if they're the wealth distributors, they must be the people to emulate. You have implicitly affirmed everything that has degraded you historically in America by buying into the prosperity gospel, and the black people are doing it in drones. That's why we say at at, um, at Church of Good Shepherd, putting the sense back into religion, because you've got to think about you've got to think about what you're doing. When you're doing religion, you're doing faith, when you're teaching your children these rules or teaching them this is the right way to be religious, you have to think about the implications of that. You're teaching them that white is right all over again. 
and it's a dangerous, pernicious ideology. Hmm. Let me ask you about the leadership. You know, uh, I'm, I'm one. I'm talking about both the religious leadership and the political leadership and the intersection of those things. I mean, just like this man releasing some statement about snobbing, snubbing uh, uh, President Barack Obama in November because he believes in equal marriage That's principles. Insane. That is so insane. Who are these leaders, and how did they get formulated, and how do they get empowered to bring in, to change? I mean, if you, you, you think about it, you've got a, a church institution as an iconic presence in our community, and they get changed by some person. What happens? What are those dynamics? Well, what we have, I mean, we know who the leaders are. What we need to be asking is who are the people that selected them and who are the people that's following them. Because we so we consistently, for instance, I'm watching, I'm watching as I now consider the possibility of of um, my options in terms of churches, just looking at churches in terms of how they select pastors now. They have you filling out applications. Why? Because that's the way white people do it. Never mind that the white folks who started this application process, churches are hemorrhaging members. People are walking out because the churches have become secular, empty, and hollow. We're not even making a connection. Just two two numbers, six and seven, right next to each other on a page, and we're not connecting those dots. But because this is the way white folk do it, we have bought into it. Okay? So there is a sense in which the people selecting these leaders are people who have been bred ideologically by watching television white ministers and who unconsciously and some consciously feel that the closer you approach a white ideological uh, position or, a, uh, or you sound white or appear to be oriented is the extent to which you are intelligent and trustworthy. I'm sorry to inform you that you really have huge numbers of black people who think that and who operate on that assumption even when they say they don't think it, they act it out. And it is most unfortunate. That is part of the pathology in the so-called black church. That's why at the very beginning I drew a distinction between black church as a descriptive or a, a reality that's out there and black church as a norm. Because a lot of people, when they say black church, they're really talking about what the black church should be. They're not talking about what the black church actually is in the way many of the people in the black church actually function. So these people are being selected, empowered, and encouraged. They're not, they are, are, are empowered, encouraged, and selected because they reflect the consciousness of the people they're leading. Our problem is deeper than this, just these people in the pulpit. Our problem is in the pew. Talk about that some more. Well, the people, we, we've, we've lost consciousness. As we became and as we become, as we begin, listen, we were never clear about what freedom was. Okay? The main thrust of the 60s was basically, the 50s and 60s, that part of the, of the black struggle, which we identify as a civil rights movement, which is primarily 
uh, identified by most people by the legal opposition to Jim Crow, which is a not the whole story, but that's how it's come to be defined. That's, that's another, another show. But the 60s were defined by freedom from, freedom from the restrictions of Jim Crow, freedom from the, the, the black-only signs, okay, freedom from the restrictions imposed on us. So we talked about freedom. We, wanted, we were talking about full participation in America, in other words, minus the, the, the restrictions imposed on us by Jim Crow. But that was not enough because what freedom became for us was largely moving into white middle-class status. And how was that defined? Primarily economically. So that freedom became a better job. Freedom became more money. Once that logic took hold, then freedom becomes wealth or identified with wealth. So you've lost your critical moral edge. At that point, what was a movement dissolves into some amorphous individualistic pursuit of wealth. It was a natural progression because okay. we didn't talk about what freedom really meant in terms in, in terms of our community. What 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 would the black community look like when freedom became a reality? It kind of dissolved into the and once the restrictions were taken away, then it was like a jailbreak. So by the by the time you get to the eighties and nineties, you got every man for himself, God for us all kind of mentality. Well, that certainly happened uh, in many cases. Uh, there is one organization uh, that is a national organization that began to do historical narrative investigation into the foreclosure uh, uh, crisis in this country and how it emanated in the black community. And one of the, the themes that was found in the investigation by uh, NACA was that many people were unable to save their homes because they had made financial commitments to their churches. And that kind of sounds like crazy to me, Reverend Johnson. I sign a piece of paper that says you can take $400 a week out of my bank account and I'm losing my home and I can't somehow unravel myself from that commitment from my church that's the kind of craziness that's going on folks for those of you who are listening in this prosperity movement stuff I mean last week we had a guest on who had actually taken out a second mortgage on our home to develop a community radio station. Well, that's a commitment you make, and it's also a commitment you hold 100%. But this other stuff is crazy. That we have churches, prosperity churches, where pastors are being paid four and five times more than the average salary of any member in the church. Four and five That we more. have church building. Oh, it's Pardon way me? past that. Wait. It's, it's way past that. It's way, it's way past that. Yeah, yeah. Four and five uh, well, times yeah. more. Yeah. It's, it's, but it's, even in small communities, I'm talking about small small black communities. 
where the uh, poverty level that that 62 percent of the people who live in the census tract live below the poverty the American national poverty level, and you have two or three black ministers who are making four and two and four two to four hundred thousand dollars in churches located in the same census tract. I mean, people are very angry about about uh, about the whole notion that some of this, some of the economics, has so deep, deeply drowned some communities in being able to support hungry children and needy families. See, see, Be- here again. Go ahead. Those people choose to do that with their money. I don't know why other people are angry. Are angry? Who, who are they angry at, and why? I'm 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 one of the people that's angry. I'm angry because people are being gouged and taken advantage of because somebody those, is selling but them people, but those bovine excrement. Are, but those people are not angry. Why are you angry? And they're not angry. See, this, 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 see, and you got to ask questions like that to get what, at what's going on. What am I supposed on. to do? What's your advice to me, Reverend Johnson? Be, because I should you not, not be angry. That's that's the, uh, no, I'm not saying that. I'm saying, uh-huh. but what are you doing, angry? And they're not. They're not angry. They're voluntarily oh, going to these churches, making these pledges and commitments, and you're angry. Why? Because what's wrong with this because the, it's so pathological that you can't. And people, people out there know. People who are listening know this. You try to talk sense into these people and say, "Well, excuse me, why aren't you firing him? Why?" I mean, you know, I had to, t- I had to tell NACA, advise NACA that one of the things that they could do to break hold of some of the stuff they were finding in their investigation was to tell people, "Close your bank account and open another one," and they can't get into the new one. That's how you do that. Yeah, very simple. If they can't stop from taking out, you put your money somewhere else. People, it's like they are mesmerized. It's like my five, my five-year-old granddaughter, who on Christmas Eve had to sleep in the window, under the window, so she could be waiting for Santa Claus. I think I think you should stop right there because now you got your finger. Got your finger on it. That is not an incidental metaphor. These people have turned God into Santa Claus, and they're afraid that if they get out the financial window, He won't bring them the gifts because mm-hmm. they're driven by their own greed and materialism. Mm-hmm. That's what mm-hmm. I'm getting at. And gee, listen, we all learned in Sunday school that a man is not measured by the abundance of his possessions. We all learned that. But we that's all know. not the if new lesson pers- of prosperity uh, of this prosperity government. Uh, I mean, well, uh, prosperity movement. Yes, and it could but, be but called people, a government. But people have bear some, and we got into this last time. People bear some of the responsibility. These, and these I people agree bear with some you. of the responsibility because of their value systems, and because they want to make the gospel into something like these people who want to turn the church. We gotta entertain the young people to keep them there. What we gotta do is give our young people some values so they don't get destroyed out here in this in this meat grinding culture that we have. 
We got to give them some values, not give them some entertainment. Because once you turn them, you, once you turn them into, what have you made them? If you lost the core of the church, then just getting them in church is not nothing. Magic happens because they're in church. You have to do church on purpose. Mm-hmm. You have mm-hmm. to teach them some things. You have to show them something by teaching them. I don't mean uh, get them to repeat after you so that it looks like they're buying into what you're saying. Teach them a certain kind of, inculcate a certain kind of value system and a certain kind of way of thinking that allows them to function effectively in the world without losing their soul. Okay, so it's not enough. It's not enough to surrender the church uh, to the whole entertainment industry in order just to say we have more young people than somebody else. We, mm-hmm. It's time out for that. That is not working. And 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 there is this other notion, and we're not going to have time to talk about it tonight. But we we certainly are going to talk about uh, a collaborative that we have developed with uh, Reverend Johnson here at our Common Ground Communications. But before we do that, and and it's the issue of how our community responds to the needs of our elderly and our senior citizens, which used to happen through churches, but happens in a vacuum now because we prize youth and ignore age. We prize Um, energy and ignore wisdom. Thank you. Um, We've got another call uh, let's take this call because I'm going to be accused of not taking calls and hogging up the guests. 773, uh, I think it's a return call. Uh, are you listening on your – oh, house music lover, thank you very much. I respect you. Thank you for joining us. Thanks for taking the call, um, Reverend Johnson. It's good to hear from you. And, you know, actually you didn't, uh, really didn't have to take the call. I was about to hang up because you guys have taken – um, such great uh, care to make all my points, to be honest. <laughs> and at this point, all I can really do is um, just uh, try and resurface uh, just a couple of points I wanted to make. One is the, uh, the basically the classism that I see in the uh, prosperity gospel and yeah. basically how um, uh, Reverend touched on in different words um, that how it's set up is, uh, you know, the, the more you get, and the more you have in this world, and the more blessed you are. And the more blessed you are, the closer you are to God, and um, and the more blessed you are by God. So the people that tend to follow and listen to this this word of the rich, you know, they're, they're fooled into thinking that they are rich because they're more blessed. And um, they end up following these people like sheep and lamb. And um, <clears throat> that's why those people are in those, those, those pews. It's so easy to get them... To follow them, get them to give, even when they don't have anything to give, and people don't understand that. You know, the, sure, as God get God asks you to give, He asks you to give to lesser people, but there's tons of ways to give without actually giving money. Um, it, but you know what that sounds like, a uh, house. That sounds like the same thing that's happening in the political arena. If you have lots of money, you can go to the Hamptons and brush brush face or brush whatever you brush uh, with uh, uh, Mitch Mitch and his friend 
and you and you stand and and you have tickets, but you know you paid fifty thousand dollars for your tickets, so you want to get in the VIP line. That's right. Money is access. That's what's. Uh, I think. What I think you're. I think you're touching on something though. That was going to respond to our brother. What is your name again? My name is uh, Alan. That, you can call our me brother Alan. Music was lover is his his username. Okay. What what uh, Brother Al, the house music lover, was saying. And that's why do these people give this money? In a lot of these churches, you have to look at the culture, the whole culture of the prosperity thing. There's, there's a lot going on here. One of the things that's also going on, and you have to get into these dynamics to really understand why these people keep giving this money mm-hmm. and, and why they're committed to these organizations is because they're seeking status within the community. See, once that church is identified as the church to belong to, then uh, then you try to find, now how do I move up in rank in, in the church? So I become increasingly more important. In a community where the self-image of a community itself is fundamentally and historically degraded, it places a premium on self-esteem or a sense of self-importance. So anywhere where human being is degraded, self-esteem, to, to, to use shorthand, becomes a scarce commodity. And one of the ways we understand ourselves as important is to be looked upon a certain way by those who share our frame of reference. So they don't want to not give certain money because they don't want to be seen a certain way. So a lot of times people are giving this money because they're wrapped up in a false sense of importance, a false sense of prestige, a false sense of social status. Because they're deriving their social status from saying, I go to Eddie Long's church or I go to Creflo Dollar's church. They say that with such pride. Right. So it's not uh-huh. simply about the ideology. It's about status. Right. And yeah. unfortunately, too many black people have become preoccupied with status within the fishbowl of a black community. So they're endeavoring to feel better than other blacks rather than to feel as equal human beings to all. And that is a trap. And these prosperity environments are excellent at exploiting those kinds of psychological deficits in the black community. I totally agree. And you mentioned one yeah. of the quick points I want to make. was Very the, uh, quick because we've culture. only got a few minutes and we've got something else to to move on to. Go ahead. Uh, yeah, of course. Just just, uh, just the culture. Um, I, I grew up in a, a Christian church. I came up in a Catholic church. Parents are Baptists. Uh, I'm a Muslim now, uh, four and a half years ago. But uh, when when I joined Islam, I was one of the first things I was told: you have to differentiate, differentiate between the culture and the religion. And as I do so every day, I also look back um, into my my Christian teachings. Um, I couldn't have become a Muslim without having been raised as a Christian, me personally. And and I see the similarities between uh, how the culture versus the religion gets jumbled and um that's kind of what you were just talking about also yeah yeah so, hey Hal, th- thanks so much for your your call we've we've got to move into something else that i think is going to be of interest to you great thanks for taking my call Janice. reverend it's good talking okay thank you and thank, thank you. you for being with us and again thanks to all of you who have joined us for this very important conversation about the black church because it has some tradition that we have lost that is being eroded 
and we are losing it at an increasing amount of wear and tear on our communities and on what is possible for us. Uh, Dr. Johnson, you are just so on point on all of these things, and and I thank you so much, and we're going to have to continue to have this discussion. And for those of you uh, <clears throat> who are listening, please keep in touch with Our Common Ground because we're going to be doing a couple of weeknight specials with um, Dr. Johnson to continue this discourse about the resources, one of the richest resources that we have had in our history in this in this country and in our struggle toward justice and freedom. But I do want to um spend a, just a few time a few minutes before we have to go and uh, Dr. Johnson has to go to let you know and to announce that Dr. Johnson is joining the our the TruthWorks Network family. His show will premiere at TruthWorks Network on August 1st, and we will certainly be sending out information to those of you who receive our newsletters, who who visit our various blogs and sites. He will have an associated blog. Uh, his his program, Souls of Fire, uh, will premiere at TruthWorks Network on August 1st, and we are so pleased to have him join our lineup. I think it's going to be important. Uh, Dr. Johnson, spend just a few minutes talking about what you're going to be doing with Souls of Fire. Well, Souls of Fire, we're going to be carrying on similar discussions about um, how spirit impacts um, and impacts the African-American community and its quality of life um, from politics to religion, how uh, authentic spirituality impacts its quality of life and how it manifests itself in the quality of life. Of course, the full breadth of African-American religion and culture. And we're going to deal with current issues, uh, historical issues. We're going to look at uh, certain books when they drop. We're going to, from time to time, have special guests. We're going to keep the discussion alive and current in ways that can have a direct and practical impact on your life from day to day. And we look forward to having that kind of impact. I truly see it as a a ministry, as a timely one, because of where we are. And uh, our byword is Spirit Matters, Uh, that no matter what dimension of life you're in, whether it's individual family, whether it's a large society, whether it's culture, whether it's politics, spirit matters. And one of the things that you said to me when we were uh, putting all of this together is that the most powerful force on earth is a soul of fire. Absolutely. And, and I think that says it all. Dr. Matthew Johnson, we look forward to uh, you joining uh, the TruthWorks Network, part of the Our Common Ground Communications family. And we think that this program, uh, because one of the things I think people do need to find is their spiritual identity, um, and that helps them shore up their cultural identity 
Absolutely. and it helps them sort out all of the other issues that are coming at us as a people and and increases our vision uh, about what it's all about. So thank you very much, and we look forward to it. And for those of you who want to know more about this program, Souls of Fire with Dr. Matthew Johnson, it's truthworks.ning.com. And we have a TruthWorks Facebook page, Dr. Johnson's show, uh, Souls of Fire will have its own Facebook page and will also have a external blog, uh, which will be located at the TruthWorks Network site on WordPress, where you can get involved in dialogue with him. And so to start off, to get ready for August 1st, it's the Tragic Vision of African American Religion by Dr. Matthew V. Johnson. I, I, I so I am so excited about this, and thank you so very much. We all are, um, and uh, we hope that you will pass the word on that we're adding a new program that is going to benefit and to increase the peace by acknowledging that spirit matters. Dr. Johnson, thank you so very much. Alpho, house music lover in Chicago. Both of them are in Chicago. Thank you so very much for your call and for all of you who are in our chat room tonight. Thank you for joining us uh, tonight at Our Common Ground. Next week at Our Common Ground, Dr. Raymond Wimbush, and we're going to be talking about uh, a myriad of cultural family issues and, of course, uh, the movement for reparations in America. We hope that you will join us at 10 p.m. Don't forget the Alpha show on Friday night. Into the Lion's Den is having some technical problems, and we hope that it will return on Wednesday and Thursday night of next week. Power Views is on vacation until uh, September 2012, as well as Global Village Voices which will be coming back. Thank you all for being with us, and be out there, be safe, and be aware. I'm Janice Graham. Thank you for joining us here at Our Common Ground. For all of you that have joined us in our chat room, we thank you as well. And we're special thanks to Reverend Dr. Matthew Johnson. I'm Janice Graham. Join us each Saturday at Our Common Ground. I'll be listening for you, speaking truth to power and ourselves. Somehow.